The Talking Football Podcast is brought to you in association with Luaf Press. Get 15% off all football titles with the code TALKINGFOOTBALL. You can also use the code UK15 for free UK shipping on orders over £15 and International30 for outside the UK for sales over £30. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 62 of the Talking Football Podcast. My name's Derek Clark and every week we try and bring you a top-class interview with some of the biggest characters involved in the game. This week I was delighted to be joined by one of the finest football commentators of all time, a man who's worked as a reporter and broadcaster for 61 years and still going strong. He's reported at 10 World Cups, covered thousands of games and his voice is one of the most well-known across the globe. Is of course the one and only John Helm. John was in terrific form with plenty of stories to tell and he even treated us to his party piece, naming the 92 Football League clubs in just 26 seconds that earned him a place in the Guinness Book of Records. So sit back and enjoy the latest episode of the Talking Football Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of the, the Talking Football Podcast. I'm delighted to say we're joined on the line well, this week by broadcasting royalty, John Helm. John, thank you very much for, for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Delighted to do it, especially in these times. It's great to be uh, still ticking over and doing something, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 it certainly is. Um, well, let's talk about, we're talking off air, of course, before we look back on your career, John, in terms of uh, the coronavirus right now, in terms of your working life and, and personal life, how's it affecting you? It's been very strange because uh, I'm just coming up to 61 years as a working man. I started on August 17, 1959, and I can honestly say I've never had more than a week off in all that time, I don't think. You know, I've been to around about 5,500 football matches, Olympic Games, Commonwealth Games, at New Dame, Open Golf Championships, and all of a sudden the diary is blank, and I mean virtually blank. Ironically, today is the day I should have been travelling home from Tokyo, having been to the Olympics. I missed out on Copper America as well last month in Colombia, uh, and I've had one day's work in six months, which is very, very strange. I, I can't say I like it either. No, 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 absolutely not. Um, the career then, John, like you said, you've been working at... at for 61 years now, it's a, a great amount of time to, to be working in, in the field, of course, but all the way back when you were born in, in 1942, you grew up in, is it Bailden, is that right, in Bradford? Yeah, very much so, and this is where I'm speaking to you from now, Derek. I wow. live in Bailden, which is my birthplace. Uh, yeah. I'm the president of the cricket club, for which I played for 30 or 40 years. Uh, I'm a life member of the golf club here in Bailden, so I know everybody in the well, it used to be a village, it's no longer a village, it's a bit of a town now, yeah. uh, but I, I am synonymous with Bailden, and I'm proud to be so, a great people who've lived here by the way, Brian Close, former England captain, was a good pal of mine, lived just down the road, um, and then a few years ago the television presenters, uh, Richard Whiteley, who did Countdown, he was a Bailden lad as well, uh, and we, we've had quite a few over, over the years, uh, and obviously a lot of Bradford City footballers tend to, to come and live in this part of the world as well. Yeah, absolutely. I actually used to live in uh, Driglington, which is not too far from you um, for, for a good number of years, so I uh, just recently moved over to, to Warrington, but it's certainly a nice part of the world over, over that, that neck of the woods. 
Yeah, Bailden used to play Dridlington in the Bradford League, and I've played at the golf course there, there as well. So well, uh, we know our roots. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, growing up, were you, did you want to be a footballer like, like as old John? Did you have sort of aspirations to, to make it as, as, as a footballer? Well, funnily enough, Derek, if I walk into Bailden now, there will be people who still call me Stan. Because as a boy growing up, uh, my nickname was Stan because I used to dribble a little tennis ball to school pretending to be Stanley Matthews. <laughs> You're very young, but I'm sure even you have heard of the man, the wizard yeah. of the dribble, who was one of England's greatest ever players. Yeah. Funnily enough, though, um, I was headed more in the direction of being a cricketer. Uh, I was a decent cricketer, better than a footballer, because I've worn these specs, you know, since I was eight. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think England have ever employed a centre forward wearing spectacles. So, uh, but cricket I could have done. And I got to, to the sort of Yorkshire trials level as a spin bowler and opening batsman. But I just love my sport from a very, very early age. I have memories of listening to BBC Radio. One of my first memories is the 1950 FA Cup final, Arsenal versus Liverpool, which Arsenal won 2-0. And I can remember listening to that on the radio while I was actually at my local cricket club. Uh, and I grew up worshipping, yeah, I mean, my, my favourite cricketers were obviously Len Hutton being a Yorkshireman, Dennis Compton because he scored the winning runs in the Ashes, my favourite footballer, yes, Stanley Matthews, uh, but in a way my idols were broadcasters, people like John Arlott and uh, Brian Johnston and Raymond Glenn Denning, I mean, these names won't mean a lot to, to modern people, but they were icons of broadcasting, and I suppose it meant to be that that was the path I took. Yeah, I was going to ask that, actually, was it maybe the, the 1950 Cup final that sort of inspired you to, to pursue that, that, that avenue, that, that sort of career? Well, probably more the 1953 Cup final. Well, I do remember 1950. 53 was the first really televised cup fight I remember when Stanley Matthews inspired Blackpool to a 4-3 victory over Bolton Wanderers. I was really watching me because I fancied the girl next door, Dorothy Kettlewell, and they had a, they had a telly and I didn't, my mum and dad didn't. <laughs> so, you, no, I'm serious, I went in there and I will never ever forget that. The euphoria and the astonishing comeback in that match and this man Matthews, who, you know, was just an astonishing footballer. Uh, and so, yeah, my love of sport probably really sprang from that. And of course, I was playing cricket and football in particular a lot at that age, out in the street as we used to do there. There's one thing I despair about, Derek, now. You don't see kids playing in the streets like we used to be able to do. You see them playing in the parks, which is good, and in sports centres, but it's not quite the same, you know, as chalking up the wickets against your own back wall uh, and batting against the lads from, from up the road. Yeah. So uh, your first sort of foray into the world of uh, journalism then, John, uh, I was reading, was it, was it BBC Leeds that you started your, your career at? Oh, no, way back. Uh, 1959, as I say, I started on a weekly newspaper called the Shipley Times and the Express. Wow. Um, my father got me an in there and I left school, Salt Grammar School, Shipley, where Jim Laker, another great cricketer, went. Uh, I left there on the Friday and on the following Monday, I say August 17, 1959, I started as a junior reporter. Uh, and my first venture into football was, uh, I was assigned to cover the local team called Salts from the famous village of Saltaire. Salts, they had a very good football team in the Yorkshire League at that time. Yeah. Got to the uh, FA Amateur Cup and played some big matches against like the Corinthian Casuals. And I actually got to travel with the team. And I thought I'd made it, you know, going on the bus with all these, these professional, semi-professional footballers. 
And I can even remember the first game I did, they got absolutely hammered 5-1 at Thorn Colliery. Uh, but you see, I, really remember, I can even remember the team to this wow. day as well. It was Dixon, Murray, Ormondroyd, uh, John Holdsworth, Thayer Stables, Sid Holdsworth, Dean Glover, uh, Regan Hardy. That was the Salts <laughs> team that day. But yeah, I, I'm fortunate I've got a pretty good memory. Yeah. So, yeah, so uh, yeah, my, my, those are my early footballing memories. And by the way, I'd now become a big fan of Bradford Park Avenue. They were my team. My dad took me to watch Bradford City, but I saw Park Avenue beat Accrington 4-0. And a fellow called Jim Milburn, who was a, a relative of, of the famous Jackie Milburn and uh, yeah. Jackie Charlton, he's got a hat-trick from fullback. And I just loved it. I thought, this is where I want to be. Because on the other side of the stand, Yorkshire played cricket and played against Australia. So I saw Hutton and Lindwall and Millwall, all at Park Avenue, which became my spiritual home. Yeah, wow, incredible. And from the, the writing sort of thing, how, how do you sort of transition into uh, the broadcasting, John? Okay, well, I did seven years at the Shipley Times and I didn't uh, regret a single minute of that. It was a great training doing yeah. local courts and councils. But then I had four years on the Yorkshire Post, uh, working on the Yorkshire Morning Post and the Evening Post uh, concurrently. And whenever there was a big sports story, they used to give it to me because they knew that I loved my sport. So if it was a sports news story, okay, the football correspondent of Leeds United would be there. But for example, I went to Anfield when Leeds United won their first title as the news sports news reporter. And as a, as a result of the work I did there, that Radio Leeds approached me in 1970 to become their sports editor. And I, I honestly couldn't believe that I was getting a call from the, the BBC, from me, the little John Helm from Bowden, to go and work for this famous world-class organisation. Yeah, incredible stuff. I wanted to touch on, of course, uh, you, you would have been at um, 1966, the World Cup, when England won that. Have you got many memories of, of watching that tournament? Oh, absolutely. I've got the programme, by the way. Wow. Uh, I've still got the match day programme. Uh, but the strange thing about that day was I was playing cricket for Bailden in the Bradford League. Yeah. And it was a one o'clock start. And amazingly, both teams were all out for 32 and the game finished at 10 to 3. Now, how <laughs> that? I'm not hinting that there was any suggestion of, uh, of it being planned, you know. And nobody got bribed, <laughs> but we were in the in the bar by the time the World Cup final kicked off. Oh, what a the great days! Yeah. In terms of the excitement around the country at that point, um, John, uh, it must have been. What what was it like to, to to live through that at that point? Well, you know, Alf Ramsey had said we are going to win the World Cup, and I think many people sort of believed him. Other people thought, oh, that was just a bit of hyperbole. Um, but as the, as the tournament went on, you could see that we were getting stronger and stronger. Uh, and we did have fantastic footballs. We had a great goalkeeper in Gordon Banks. We had a wonderful striker of a ball in Bobby Charlton. But emerging heroes like Alan Ball, who was the youngest member of the team there, Martin Peters, who was still a young man as well. Uh, Bobby Moore, who was a, just a, a god sort of thing in the eyes of most people. Uh, and we had a wonderful team spirit, clearly, and we weren't conceding goals. So I think all along we thought, we've got a chance here. We really do have a chance of pulling off what Sir Alf Ramsey had predicted. 
the only disappointing thing was that I think we all thought that Jimmy Greaves was going to be the hero because he was the goal scoring god of the England team at the time. And he got a slight injury and then he lost his place to Jeff Hurst. And we all thought, oh, blimey, you know, that, that's done it now. And of course, who should go up with the, with the goods on World Cup final day? But Jeff Hurst, an amazing story. And what's been lovely for me is that uh, I've got to know many of that team. And uh, in fact, only two years ago, I went to one of the last get-togethers of the World Cup squad um, at a function at Ellen Road. And I had a photograph taken with Jack Charlton, George Cohen, Gordon Banks, who was still alive. Sadly, two of those three have since gone, and Martin Peters. So, but uh, I really became friendly with many of that group of players who are still an institution and the most famous footballers in English history. Oh yeah, they certainly are. That's that, that's for sure. Um, in terms of, of course, moving into the the radio side of things, John, um, did. Did, did it take you a while to, to adjust to that from what you're used to or did you sort of take it in your, in your stride? I like to think I took it in my stride, but I think I was helped a great deal along the way by the fact that Leeds United were probably the best team in Europe at that time. And Don Reeby I got on famously with. Uh, I'll never forget, on the very first day at Radio Leeds, I was sent to interview Don Reeby because there was a story in the papers that he might be leaving Leeds United I think he was to join Birmingham City at that time. There were rumours about Birmingham and Sunderland and Everton. Yeah. And he was very good with me. He said, look, I'm going to deny it, obviously. I'm employed by Leeds United. I realise you've got a job to do, though. So you ask the questions and I'll bat them back. Uh, and that's exactly what he did. And the interview got played out on network radio on my very first day. Wow. Um, and that gave me an in with BBC in London as well, uh, which ultimately led to me representing the whole of local radio at the 1974 Commonwealth Games in Christchurch. But I, I reiterate here, Derek, that Leeds United were absolutely synonymous with my career in that uh, I fed off them, if you like. All their players were famous. Here's another team, Sprake, Greeny, Cooper, Bremner, Charlton Hunter, Laurie McClark, Jones, Giles Gray, not forgetting Maidley. Uh, and so I was constantly interviewing all of those players, commentating on all of their matches at home and in Europe. You know, I went to Juventus, I went uh, to Portugal with them, I did Belgium. Uh, and so that did wonders for my career, really. So I have a lot to thank Leeds United for. Yeah. What was it like? Like, like you said, Don, Don Reefy, was it, did you feel, that, what, what was it like as a character? Did it, did, was it a sort of intimidating character or, or did it make you feel welcome? I'll tell you a couple of little stories here. One, when you went to interview him at the ground, you, were, you had to wait a minute or two, and then his secretary, Maureen, would say, right, Mr. Reeve, ready to see you now. And you went into his little office, and his chair was always higher than your seat. So he towered over you. Very clever psychological move. He was, he was a big, imposing man, by the way. When he walked into a room, you knew that Don Reeve was there. Well, over six feet tall, strongly built. But I always said that there were two Don Reavies. There was the one that you met at the ground who was very formal, but perfectly, you know, pleasant with you and would always do the interviews, always kind, uh, no question about that. But when you met Don Reavy at home with his wife, Elsie, he was a different man. She absolutely dominated him <laughs> as Bill Shankly was dominated by his wife, Ness. And he took on a far gentler uh, aspect. Or if you met him at a golf club, for example, it was a different Don Reavy to the one that was at work. But the one that was at work was admired and respected by all his uh, staff. He knew the name of every single person at that club and, and the birthdays of the cleaning ladies, you know, the one who 
threw my shirts into the laundry. He knew all of their birthdays, all of their husbands. He checked on all of their families every day. He, he was very kind to me. He was, he was a good guy. I know they called him Don, Don Reddies, and I know that uh, he liked his money. Of course he did, you know. But uh, he, was, he was a great English club manager, no question about that. Yeah, certainly was. And, and I mean, that Leeds United side, was, United side was full of stars, of course. You rhymed off a whole load of them there. Jack Charlton, of course, is when you get pally with as well. Um, obviously sad that he's, he's been taken from us uh, quite recently, but what a character he was, John. Oh, wonderful. I love Big Jack. And uh, again, a couple of little stories, because when he was still playing and in his testimonial season, when they played Glasgow Celtic at Ellen Road, he actually came to me with an idea. And he wanted to do 10 programmes for local radio, for BBC, uh, but not involving football. That was the strange thing about it. He had such a wide kaleidoscope of interests. He, his idea was that I would give him a tape recorder and he would go off and do what he wanted with it. And it was fantastic. I mean, one day he went to a glass blowing factory, another day he went to an abattoir. But maybe the highlight, he went poaching one night. Uh, and of course, everybody wanted to talk to Big Jack. So we got remarkable insight and remarkable interviews with people. Uh, and the only one where he strayed slightly into his own field was he interviewed three footballing journalists, Ken Jones from The Independent, James Mossop from The Express at the time, and one other, I can't quite remember who the third one was, might have been Jim Lawson. And he did this brilliant interview with three journalists. Now, who else would have thought of that, a professional footballer? You know, it's the equivalent of Marcus Ashford today asking three football journalists and he don't, don't, don't think it'll happen somehow. Well, Big Jack was an absolutely fascinating, engaging man, far more interesting than Bobby, strangely enough. Uh, and Bobby wouldn't mind me saying that, they are two entirely different people. But uh, you never had a dull moment with Jack. Uh, and if he was talking to you now, he'd want to know about you. He wouldn't want to talk about himself. He'd want to know about you and your background and how you about things so and Billy was Billy was a great little character as well entirely different to Jack uh, the thing about Billy Brenda of course was when we used to fly abroad he was absolutely dare I say almost wetting himself he hated flying so the answer was for him to get drunk and he did uh, on flights certainly coming back if not going out there but Don Reeve knew and he just knew that that was the way Billy coped with it he'd be first into training the following day yeah and they were Great settler, Norman Hunter, another one sadly we've lost. Lovely, genuine man with the firmest handshake you've ever known, Norman. Eddie Gray, absolutely delightful gentleman. One of the nicest blokes you'd ever meet. Yeah, so they were a team full of different characters. Yeah, they certainly were. Um, you covered, is it 10 World Cups? Is that, is that right, John? That you've yeah, yeah. I've done 10. That's something else, that. Yes, yeah, so my first World Cup was 1978 in Argentina. Uh, and nearly, I got a call in 1974 asking about my availability to go to Germany. Um, the reason being, uh, I was by now working for Yorkshire Television, so, uh, oh no, sorry, I was at Radio Leeds still. The, the, uh, one, of the, one of the commentators had had a bad night, he misbehaved himself. I think he'd made, had one too many. And they contacted me about my availability to get across there quickly to Germany. Uh, anyway, he suddenly he told the line for the rest of the trip. He's, he's a commentator. He's still working, by the way, and I'm not going to give his name. Oh. <laughs> but then uh, I was at BBC in London in 1978. I became the network football producer, and I went to Argentina as the producer. 
rather than as a commentator. I did commentate on the third, fourth playoff match. So I can say I did commentate Brazil versus Italy. Yeah. Uh, and since then, I've done every World Cup, barring 1998, which I missed out on because uh, ITV, well within their rights, took on Peter Drury. And uh, I was the one to miss out. Um, but apart from that, I've done every World Cup since 1978. Yeah. Wow. And you must, I mean, there must be some tales from lo lo those, those tournaments. Is there any specific tournament that, that sticks out for you as one that you felt, yeah, this is a proper tournament, this? Oh, the 1982 for me was the best in Spain. I mean, many people point to 1990 because England did so well. And I can also remember, just before I go into Spain, in 78 in Argentina, five minutes after the final whistle, I was interviewing Ernie Brandt, one of the Dutch players. I imagine that today, five minutes after a final whistle, you're by the dressing room door doing an interview with one of the players. It just couldn't possibly happen. But 82... In Spain, for me, was magical. I, I was very lucky because I was allocated Scotland's group and they just happened to be in the same group as Brazil and Russia and New Zealand. So I did every one of their matches in Malaga and Seville. And then uh, I was then assigned uh, Brazil's group again, again with Argentina and Italy based in Barcelona. And so, you know, I got to know and I got to see Zico and Socrates and Falcao and they were... A wonderful, wonderful side. Definitely the best that's never won the World Cup. And I'm ashamed to say that I was probably guilty of bias uh, because they were so good. I desperately wanted them to win the World Cup. I think it would have been great for football if they had. And they had one bad day and lost out to a Paolo Rossi hat-trick for Italy, 3-2. And I, I could have cried that day. I really could have cried. I wanted them to win it so much. Plus the fact it would have got me to the final probably because I would have been doing the final. I can remember flying home on Cup, World Cup final day, thinking this ain't right. I, again, I've done the third, fourth playoff match in Alicante, uh, Poland against France. Uh, but since then, I've always managed to be there right through until the World Cup final itself. Yeah, incredible stuff. In terms of commentating on, on England, John, how is that as, as an experience? And um, I, I mean, it must be something else commentating on your, on your own country. It is. Uh, and people have always said about being biased or is it difficult? And it isn't really because as a commentator, you are trained to be impartial. Uh, and I've managed to, to do that, I think. Although I have to admit that fully of my very last game that I did in the World Cup in Russia was England's victory over Sweden. Um, and that was, it was great. You know, when Harry Maguire scored and Delhi Ali scored, there's a little thumping going on inside there. <laughs> But you try to control it to keep it at a level which wouldn't upset anybody in Sweden, for example, because I do the world feed for FIFA, so you've got to think of, of both sides. But um, I've also seen some pretty horrible England performances. Uh, one against uh, Costa Rica was oh, pretty dire uh, four years earlier in Brazil. And um, yeah, of course, you want them to do well. I've, I've commentated on Beckham, uh, I mean, that was one of the funny ones. I think if you look on YouTube, uh, I'm neither proud nor anything else of this one. Beckham scored the winning goal in Frankfurt, uh, and my it cut to a sh shot of Posh Spice sitting in the stands watching him. And I think my line was, uh, "Beckham knows how to satisfy his wife." <laughs> so it's something ridiculous like that. <laughs> I didn't really mean it in that though. In that guy's though. <laughs> Um, you, I mean, you've commentated on some cracking moments, of course. You were there in USA 94, of course, where the boy, the Saudi Arabian boy, said that Alwiran scored that goal. Um, what was that like to, to, to commentate oh, when you're watching it? 
yeah, funnily enough, I was doing that one off tube. Uh, in other words, I was in Dallas commentating <laughs> off a monitor where the game was being played in another part of the States. But that was, for me, probably the greatest World Cup finals goal. I mean, it, just, it was just extraordinary. And I've seen some phenomenal goals. But uh, I will never forget that. And people ask me about that. And I always say, Ali Ibrahim, what a goal that, that was. But of course, that was another thing in America. Um, I was slightly disappointed in America because I was told I was going to be ITV's number one commentator there because Brian Moore was. But at times he wanted to go home. He didn't want to spend the full four or five weeks out there in the States. And he did. But what happened was I did the opening game, uh, Germany-Bolivia. The one that is famous for Diana Ross miskicking the ball in, remember, the, yeah. in the build up. Yeah, that's right. Um, but uh, that, that was a poor game. And then I ended up doing USA with a great victory, but sadly the one against Colombia, which resulted in Andres Escobar being murdered uh, afterwards because he put through his own goal. But then I was based in Dallas and ITV bosses uh, struck a deal with South African and Canadian television for me to do commentaries from, for matches for them, but it meant I had to do them all in Dallas rather than going to the stadiums. And I was doing two and three games a day with the likes of Don Howe and David Pleat, but not actually getting to the games. In the end, I got to about seven or eight matches, uh, but, but in, in a way, just put a bit of a damper. For yeah. me, there is nothing better than being in the stadium, feeling the passion. That's why it's so hard at the moment behind closed doors. And, Germany was, I think, 26 matches in Germany. Uh, and there's a, a funny memory for you. Uh, I was in Stuttgart, but getting a train to Kaiserslautern, had a, a seat booked. When the train arrived, I couldn't get on it because of inflatable kangaroos. All the Aussie supporters <laughs> dressed as inflatable kangaroos took up every single space. And I'm desperately trying to get into the train, I couldn't even get into the train. <laughs> because of inflatable kangaroos, I had to wait for the next one. Fortunately, I did get there in the end, and Australia won the match. <laughs> Unbelievable. I think twice. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, cracking memories, of course, uh, uh, commentating uh, World Cups, John. I guess one well, obvious lowlight must, must, must be when you're commentating, of course, in the Bradford fire in, in 85. I mean... Uh, uh, Words can't really describe how, how you can sort of deal with a situation like that, I guess. I was very grateful on that day for the fact that I'd had those seven years training at a weekly newspaper and four years at a daily paper, yeah. plus uh, several years on local radio and national radio before I transferred into television work. Because without being whatever the right word is for this, I would have hated to think of an inexperienced commentator being thrust into that situation. It quite candidly was the most horrific circumstance that anybody, you could never have possibly envisaged it. We, we were there recording the game simply because Bradford City had won the title and we'd been presented with the trophy. We would never have even contemplated covering, with all due respect, Bradford City versus Lincoln City just as a normal game um, because the only thing that was important about it was the, the presentation of the trophy. It was a beautiful day as well. Um, but the training I had stood me in good stead when the fire started, and I think I was one of the first to spot it because I put the lazy talk back down and asked our director to hone in the camera on it. And I, my words were, there appears to be a small fire in the stand. Four and a half minutes later, that entire stand had gone. It was gutted. You know? It was just a shell. 
and there were people running all over the place, of course, and some horrific scenes. Uh, and rather oddly and unhappily, I was being stoned as well by some supporters who were caught up in the hysteria of the moment, shouting for us to switch our cameras off, which is a good job we didn't because the pictures have been used from that day to this by the emergency services, the fire and the ambulance police. So it was a good thing that we, we kept it rolling, but um, no, it was something that you wouldn't wish upon any other commentator. Uh, and um, I was just glad at the end of the day, I think, that we seemed to do a professional job, which was recognised later with a couple of awards, that, that's unimportant, but that we hadn't over-dramatised what was a very, very dramatic situation anyway. You know, words would have been verbose. I didn't use too many words. I was just encouraged by the director to keep talking in my headphones as long as I could, which is what I did until he told me, okay, I could stop talking and go down onto the pitch to do some interviews. Yeah. So yeah, um, horrible circumstances, but grateful for all the backing I've had and, uh, and the preparation for that moment with, with all the different work I'd, I'd achieved before that. Yeah, I mean, you remain professional throughout. Does it sometimes does it hit you when you sort of come off, Mike, John? At some point, you realise the sort of the gravity of the the situation and, and what what's just taking place. Yeah, very much so. In fact, uh, that evening we did a program on Yorkshire Television, an hours program. We had in people like Stafford Hagerbottom, chairman of Bradford City, Graham Kelly, secretary of the Football League at the time, and uh, the following day. I still can't believe we had to do this, but and I understand it. We were doing an outside broadcast at Odsall Stadium for the World Pairs Speedway Championships. And I said, I can't present that. I've just come through this horrific uh, set of circumstances. And they said, well, the event's going ahead and you're our only presenter. You've got to do it. Uh, I said, well, OK, I will, but I can't smile. And I shall have to explain to the camera immediately at the start of the programme what happened yesterday and which is why that we are still going ahead with this broadcast life goes on but none of us will be able to smile throughout the entire day because of what happened yesterday and we did it but then uh, I had a word with the bosses at Yorkshire Television I went in on the calendar program on the Monday to talk about the fire and then I went away for a holiday with my wife uh, because I just had to get over it the ironic thing was that she was working for the Samaritans at the time and uh, I probably should have had counselling because it affected me for certainly six months. Uh, even when Bradford City opened the stadium again, having rebuilt it, obviously, uh, for a game against an England eleven picked by Bobby Robson, I still felt very strange walking into Valley Parade. I don't now because it's, you know, time is a healer and we're talking 35 years on now. Uh, but for quite a while afterwards, it, it felt very odd going back to Valley Parade. Yeah, it certainly would do. Um, other than that, Jordan, is there any specific game that I know you've covered thousands of games during your, your life as a commentator? Is there anyone that sort of stands out or any couple that stand out you th that they were pretty special? Yeah, I'll surprise you here um, because uh, I've been very fortunate working with FIFA, where it's a company called Host Broadcast Services, who is the broadcast arm of FIFA. I get sent to not just World Cups, but Women's World Cups, under 17s, under 20s. Uh, and all the draws and I was doing the under 17 World Cup in Finland uh, it was the year when Spain had the likes of Fabregas and uh, uh, Mata playing for them a really terrific Spanish team Torres I think was in the side as well but that wasn't the, the match I was in a place called Tampere and the game was 
Portugal versus Cameroon. Now, this might sound a strange start to, to the story. <laughs> Portugal only needed a draw to go through uh, to the, the next round, the round of 16 or whatever it was at the time. And uh, Cameroon had to win. And just before half-time, a Portuguese midfield player scored the greatest goal I've ever seen. The goalkeeper clears it, and as it's dropping, he stood inside the centre circle, spots that the goalkeeper's come 20 yards off his line and hooked the ball over his own head, over the goalkeeper, just underneath the crossbar from about 55 yards. It was absolutely astonishing goal. So I'm raving about that. Portugal 1-0 up. After 75 minutes, Portugal were 5-0 up, so they're obviously going to go through. Cameroon brought on a substitute centre forward. His name escapes me now. And they scored five in the last 15 minutes. And it, it finished 5-5. And I swear if that game had lasted another minute, uh, Cameroon would have won it without question. But what I didn't find out until afterwards was the Portuguese lads had been out on the lash the night before, just assuming <laughs> they were going to walk it. And ran out of steam after 75 minutes. But it is still the greatest memory of a match I've got from 5-0 to 5-5 in 15 minutes. It's wow. quite astonishing. Incredible stuff. And then um, I was going to ask as well, any sort of uh, bloopers or any, any sort of gaffes that you, you've made on here, John? Well, I, I already mentioned the, the Beckham one. But yeah, one, yeah, one of my worst was, uh, this was on radio, I once said, the good news for Northern Ireland tonight in preparation for their home international game with England at Windsor Park, the uh, Ipswich Town winger Brian Hamilton has pissed his fatness test. <laughs> Did I say that? And I, look, and I saw all these arms and legs going up all over the place. And sure enough, I had said he pissed his fatness test, which uh, been repeated a few times. But uh, I like to think not in not in um, big matches, yeah. shall we say, not not in World Cups or in European Championships. I'm not I've not been quoted as uh, having made any horrific howls. Anyway, we all do. It's part of the trade, isn't it? You know, so. Absolutely, absolutely. And you mentioned that you, you touched on Zico a little earlier in terms of players. Is there any, any other players that, that stood out and you thought, oh, it's, it's just a pleasure to watch this guy in action? Oh, very much so. By the way, I got to know Zico very well in later life because I go to India every year. If you know that, I do the Indian Super League. Zico managed FC Goa for three years. So I've got pictures probably in this room behind me now with Zico and myself. Great, great man. But yeah, I mean, the first time I saw Maradona, was at Hamden Park. Uh, he'd missed out on the 78 World Cup finals, and Manotti wouldn't pick him. Uh, obviously, featured in 82, he got himself sent off there. But Maradona scored a goal at Hamden Park against Scotland. But Dennis Law was with us with the radio commentary team. And Dennis was just bedazzled. He couldn't speak with the quality of this goal that Maradona scored. You know, we talk about the one the legal one against England <laughs> and Mexico, but this one was just as good. He, he sort of, from the halfway line, picked the ball up and he scored with the outside of his boot from about 40 yards, sending George Wood, the Scottish goalkeeper, the wrong way. So he was one. We always talk about attackers, uh, and yet I always thought the most stylish defender was Franco Baresi, the Italian. When I saw Baresi play, he just seemed to glide through games. Absolutely effortless. And then of course in, in later years the, the Messi's and the Ronaldo's have, have been clearly on a world level not capable for most people. You know Messi scored a goal the other day didn't he yesterday. You know beat five players. To, he's still doing that now and they just make the game look so effortless. And I'll mention one more 
and this takes me right back to where we started when I were a lad. Uh, Leeds United <laughs> had a player called John Charles, and I'd heard about this fellow John Charles, uh, played for Wales, got transferred to Juventus in the days when that sort of thing didn't happen. And I went to see him play for Leeds United against Portsmouth. Park Avenue must have been away that day. <laughs> and I swear to you, John Charles scored with a header from 30 yards and the ball was still going up as it went just underneath the crossbar and Norman Pritchard, the Portsmouth goalkeeper, never got near it. And I was right behind the net. And I just thought, wow, that was unbelievable. And I got... John Charles was a great man. He even came to my 60th birthday as a surprise guest. He just, you know, I had no idea he was going to turn up. And he was a lovely, gentle giant. Even Alex Ferguson said, John Charles is possibly the greatest footballer that's ever lived. Honestly, the younger generation never heard of him. But And Pele once said that if John Charles hadn't got injured, Wales might have won the 1958 World Cup. He got injured before the semi-final. Brazil beat Wales and, and won the World Cup. Charles was that great. Yeah, yeah, he certainly was. Um, and in terms of life as a commentator, John, and from when, when you began to, to, to what, it, what it is now, has it changed somewhat from uh, what it was when, when you first started out? No, dramatically. Absolutely dramatically. I mean, one thing that's really changed, uh, the internet has changed things as well, but um, I used to know the names and I used to have the phone numbers of every player in what is now the Premier League. Um, no, there was just no access to a player or even to a manager. I remember Jim Smith, the bald eagle. Um, <laughs> whenever I used to do games at Derby County, I used to have a pot of coffee and a prawn sandwich with him before the game. And I heard him saying on radio one day, oh, those days are gone now. You've got to meet the sponsors. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. So all that has changed, which are peripheral to the actual commentary itself. The commentaries are different because we've got so many foreign players in the game now, so there is far more emphasis on learning pronunciations. Um, whereas in the old days, they were all called Taylor, Smith, Jones, Brown, whatever. Uh, now we've got players coming from over 100 different nationalities. So that, that, that's been a big change as well. And even the style of commentary has changed slightly depending where you go in the world. Um, some countries talk all the time. The commentator never shuts up. Uh, some, they're far more measured, you know, which is more my style, I suppose. And I even have to think about that when I go to India, that it might be a bit different because you have to drop in sponsors' names or talk about Facebook or talk about different things during the course of the game as opposed to just the match. So you have to be aware of far more things than you ever used to do in, in, in the days when I started, yeah. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned there Jim Smith. Um, I'm interested, is there any, was there any other managers that you, you interviewed that were maybe uh, a bit difficult or a bit uh, harder to, to handle? Oh, yeah. Well, the, the classic was Cluffy, of course. I mean, I, fully, I, I did enjoy interviewing Cluffy uh, because you always knew you were going to get a fantastic soundbite. But boy, did you have to be on your toes. Um, I did a game at Forest one night, a European match, when they got beaten by a team called CSKA Sofia from Bulgaria. And my first question to him was, I suspect it's the pride that hurts more than anything tonight. Brian said, hey, who said that, young man? I said, I just did. He said, no. Ernest Hemingway, importance of being earnest, page 139. <laughs> Not the answer you were expecting, really, you know. Uh, Gordon Strachan can be very tricky. 
Uh, he's yeah. a good friend of mine, is Gordon, and he knows it. He knows that when he's, he's be a bit naughty, you know, throwing something back at you, give me a word, velocity, whatever. Uh, <laughs> Terry Venables could be prickly at times as well, by and large. And, and then there were one or two who, who there was a guy at um, Sean O'Driscoll at Doncaster Rovers. He wouldn't look at you, he, he turned his head away from the camera and away from you. So you couldn't see what he was saying, and he tended to mutter a little bit as well, very low key. So the, you know, there are difficult, the majority are pretty good, and they're so used to doing it now, of course. But uh, one or two highlights for you there. Yeah, in terms of the co -comment, uh, commentators that you have sometimes when there's like a manager or a player up with you, is, is there ones that, the, that you have a lot more fun than, than others that, that make the game a bit more uh, lively and entertaining? Well, yeah, very much so. Uh, it's not just the game as well. It's the, the, the entire job of being with you throughout a couple of days, maybe in a foreign place, somewhere in Lithuania or whatever, <laughs> where you've got to get on, on together. The one I enjoyed working with most of all, and uh, he knows it and we all know it, was Joe Royal. Joe had a fantastic sense of humour, a scouse, uh, but did his homework on the teams as well and would always inject some humour in, always supportive of what you said. I'm not saying that they should... He agree with everything that you said. They don't, but he gave you a good insight. Terry Butcher was another who worked really hard on getting to know the players. He'd ring the manager up. If it was a team that, I suppose it was Ipswich, for example, it'd be great because he'd know the manager. He'd ring him up on the day of the game and get all inside information, which he would pass on to you privately. Um, so those two, Dave Bassett was, was excellent as well. I had a theory where I worked a lot with Dave when he was manager of Sheffield United. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, but you're right, there has to be that rapport. Uh, yeah. Jack Charlton was funny because I mentioned about pronunciations and in the World Cup in USA, I think it was, I worked with Big Jack and we did a Brazilian game and he managed to refer to Psycho, which we'd normally <laughs> pronounce Zico, uh, Socrates, who would normally be Socrates, and the classic of all for me, Peel, Peel, Pelly. <laughs> no, Big Jack, Big Jack was hopeless on names, absolutely hopeless. But you absolutely loved him for it, and it gave you a giggle. That's the point about it. You just have to giggle, and he's what I said now. You know, no, it's very, very funny. But then all of those after the game, what I really liked about them, you surprise, surprise, go to a bar somewhere in the hotel or on the way back, and they would always make a point of buying a round of drinks for. All the lads, you know, they'd know the names of the cameramen or the sound guys because they were part of a team. Uh, and that's the, the emphasis you've got to place on that. He's not just there to kill commentate, he's there as part of a team. And they were all brilliant at that. Yeah. You've been doing it for so long, John. Uh, I guess you, love, you still love it uh, as much today as you did back then. I guess you're still looking to continue on. Well, I'm, I'm hoping a coronavirus isn't going to be the end for me. The pandemic might be the only thing to stop me. I can't wait for the phone to ring. I mean, we're in talk now uh, about good, the, the new Indian Super League starts in November. Uh, but the word is it may well be that we can't travel. Uh, Russell Osman is my co-commentator there. We might even be doing it from here, from this house in, in Bailden. Indian Super League from Bailden. Wow. Uh, but oh, I'm, I'm desperate to carry on working. I love it. I, I can't wait for an email or the phone to ring. Or, can you come to Colombia? Can you come to wherever? Wherever in the world. I've enjoyed the travel. and I've had such a lucky life, really, to, to do something that I 
you know, like what's that I'll do it without getting paid? But I mean, it, it, seriously, it, it's been an absolute pleasure to work on something that you would do just out of love, really. You know, I've never lost sight of that fact that all these people who can talk about having been to a World Cup or an Olympic Games, and they have been to 10 and four Olympic Games and Commonwealth Games and Asian Games. Um, so I'm still, yeah, I'm still looking forward to doing as much as possible. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to ask you, John, I mean, I, I watched a, a video recently of you reciting the, the 92 Football League clubs in 26 seconds. I was, I was blown away how, how, how you managed to do that. How, how, how did that even come across that you, you, would, you would try something like that? I can't believe that you're going to ask me to do this. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I'll tell you how it happened. When I worked for BBC Radio in London, um, we started a programme called Brain of Sport. And uh, I always say, these damn call them anoraks, but they are, who knew the name of a timekeeper in a boxing match from 1920. You know, and we put a team of commentators against them. And believe it or not, uh, we had to sit an exam. Uh, in the office as to who were going to be the three representatives of BBC Radio against this brain of sport team. And bear in mind, our office at that time included people like Peter Jones, Brian Butler, Christopher Martin Jenkins, Jim Rosenthal, Ian Dark, Mike Ingham, the, the names just roll off of song, Alan Barry. Uh, anyway, the three of us who came out on top were myself, Des Lynham, and Christopher Martin Jenkins. We were the three nominated to take part. So just as a joke, um, when it came to my first question, Peter Jones was the question master. I said, Peter, just ask me to name all the teams in the county championships. I said, well, how long will that take? I said, not long. For example, it's Derbyshire, Durham, Essex, Northern Gloucestershire, Hampshire, Kent, Lancashire, Leicester, Middlesex, Northwest, not Somerset, Surrey, Southern Quality, Worcestershire, Yorkshire. It took about four seconds. Oh, right. So, right. so it came to the second part of the question. And I said, okay, you know, he said, okay, right, how clever, so, you know, give me all 36 teams in the rugby league. I said, well, that's easy. There's Barrow, Mackley, Blackpool, Bradford, Bramley, Cardiff, Carlo, Cassavich, Holy Dewsbury, Doncaster, Featherston, Fulham, Halifax, Huddersfield, Hull, Hawkinson, Rose, Hunslet, Highton, Keithley, Leeds, Lee, Nottingham, Oldham, Rochdale, Wonkborn, St. Ellen, Salford, Sheffield, Swinton, Chaffin, Wakefield, Warrington, Whitehead, and Bisswick, and Worthington, and York. It took about 12, 15 seconds. Now, I used to occasionally, you've heard of a fellow called James Alexander Gordon, maybe who was the voice behind the football results on Sports Report on a Saturday. Well, when James wasn't there, I used to do those football results. Arsenal won, Aston Villa, no. You know, get, the, get it on. And in the pub on a Saturday night, people used to say, how did so-and-so go on? And I just used to be able to remember all the teams. So Peter Joe said, all right then, come on, for the last part of this question, for a point, can you name all 92 clubs in the football leagues? So I said, Thinks, so. oh, and I'll do it slowly for you, Derek. I said, There's Arsenal, Villa, Birmingham, Brighton, Coventry, Everett, Chichley, Liverpool, Man City, Man United, Middlesbrough, Nottingham, West, Notts County, Southampton, Stoke, Son of the Swansea, Tottenham, West Brom, West Ham, Wolves, Barnsley, Blackburn, Bolton, Cambridge, Cardiff, Charlton, Chelsea, Crystal Palace, Derby, Grimsby, Leicester, Luton, Newcastle, Norwich, Old Murray, QPR, Rotherham, Sheffield, Wednesday, Sheffield, Watford, Wrexham, Brentford, Bristol City, Bristol Rose, Burnley, Coward, Chester, Chesterfield, Donkish, Exeter, Fulham, Julian, Huddersfield, Lincoln, Liverpool, Newport, Oxford, Dunport, Preston, Reading, South and Swindon, Walls and Wimbledon, Accrington, Aldershot, Barnet, Blackpool, Bournemouth, Bradford, Bury, Coast, Crew, Downey, Halifax, Hartlepool, Hereford, Macclesfield, Mansfield, Northampton, Peterborough, Portland, Rochdale, Scarborough, Scumpark, Sheffield, Stockport, Torquay, Chandler, Wigan, Wickham and York. So, <laughs> so he said, you can name all 20, all 92, can you? Uh, and I stress, by the way, this was 1981-82 season. So one or two of those have disappeared. But once Kidderminster Harriers and Rushton and Diamonds came in, and a dagger of a red bridge, oh, 
I get it. I'm not <laughs> so um, I, I got a phone call from Pebble Mill at One, which was a television program at that time. They'd heard me do it. And they got me to do it on television, backed by Kenny Ball and his jazz band. And then I got a phone call from Guinness Book of Records, Norris McWhirt, and to, um, to establish it properly, they came up and recorded it on Yorkshire television, and I did it in 26 seconds, which got me into the Guinness Book of Records. And uh, yeah, I appeared on a program which David Frost introduced with Paul McCartney, who sold the most records worldwide, and Billie Jean King, who had won the most Wimbledon titles. The world's fastest cucumber slicer, that was unforgettable. <laughs> uh, a lady who'd fallen 30 odd thousand feet out of a plane and lived, unbelievable, the highest that anybody's ever survived a plane crash. And the man who'd played Dracula the most times. So <laughs> I, I got on a show with all these really important people, especially the cucumber slicer. <laughs> and I can't believe you only get a point for that, that's incredible stuff. That was a point. I got a point for that. <laughs> but at least it proved it. When they, when they slowed it down uh, and did it in these 26 seconds, they checked it out and every club was in there. So nobody's taking on. It's amazing, isn't it? It's, it's an unbelievable. Bill. It's been a, it's a great time to, to finish up, John. It's been an absolute pleasure um, hearing about, about your, your career and what have you. It's, it's been great having you on. Thank you for, for coming on. My pleasure. I hope you, we do it again in another 60 years. Yeah, yeah let's do it. Well, that was episode 62 of the Talking Football podcast with John Helm. I hope you enjoyed it as always. Remember, if you want to listen to any previous shows, you can catch them all in pretty much every podcast provider. We're on the likes of Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, and we're now on iHeartRadio as well as Podbean and others. Be sure to subscribe to the Talking Fitball website as well. It's just talkingfitball.co.uk. There's a whole load of great content on there too. If you're on Twitter, you can follow us at Talking underscore Fitball and we're on Facebook as well. Hope you can join me again next time. But until then, keep safe and bye for now. Mm-hmm.